Good morning, River Rock Bible Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Everybody, kids survived the last day of school. Teachers, have you survived? Parents, are you surviving? It's only one day into summer vacation, but I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, We are excited to be starting a brand new series this morning through the book of Malachi. We're going to spend the next uh, number of weeks, six, seven weeks, going through the book of Malachi. And you're like, it's only four chapters. How can it take that long? Uh, As you're going to see this morning, this is a very, very dense book. And and I just want to start, you'll see the subtitle here is Questioning God. And uh, I just want to start by asking you a question. And and be honest, how many of you have ever um, felt unloved? Anybody ever just felt unloved? Maybe, maybe it was by a parent or, or a friend or a spouse, and you knew in your head that I, I know they love me, I know they care about me, but whatever they just said or whatever they have or haven't done, I just, I'm just not feeling the love. Anybody ever been there? Now let me ask you this. How many of you can be honest enough to say, I've been there in my relationship with God? Maybe you're struggling financially, you're struggling Physically, you're struggling emotionally, you're struggling in any number of ways, and you just find yourself at this point in your life where you say, God, are you even there? Do you even care what I'm going through? And you start to, to question God, and you say, God, I, I, at this point in my life, I don't, I, I don't feel like you love me. I just don't know that you care. Or maybe if you are there, that maybe you're just, maybe you're just not powerful enough to stop this. Or maybe... Maybe you're not as good as I thought you were. And we begin to ask ourselves these questions. And, and what I love about the book of Malachi is that's exactly where we find the people of God as we start the book of Malachi, chapter 1. And we're going to jump right in uh, to the book of Malachi. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're only going to get through the first five verses today. So you can see how it's going to take us a number of weeks to go through there. And it starts with this, an oracle Uh, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now let me stop and talk about the name Malachi. Malachi, the name means my messenger. means my messenger. And many of you who know me and you know my wife, you know that we have a son whose name is Malachi. And uh, this is him, handsome boy. This was his first deer hunt with daddy. Uh, So he was excited. We got to do a little deer hunting together. And uh, man, he is just such a, a great blessing to our family. And I love this little boy. Um, but when we picked his name, uh, one of the reasons we picked his name is because of what it means. It means my messenger and because of this book in the Bible. Uh, our desire, our prayer has been for all of our children that they would be messengers of God, but specifically for Malachi, that he would be God's messenger that would tell every man, woman, and child that he meets about the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. Now, some other things about the book of Malachi, you'll notice that it is the last book in the Old Testament, but Malachi is not actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. Does anybody know who the last one is? John the Baptist. Very good. Yeah, we had someone over here say it. John the Baptist is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last one to come before Jesus. And you may know that we have another son whose first name is John. So I got two prophets in my family. John's actually a family name, and he's actually the sixth generation of John Turners, John Bear. 
goes by Bear, but he's the sixth generation of John Turner's. But again, I picked this name not only because it's a family name, but because of who John the Baptist was. And we're actually going to read at the end of the book of Malachi that God promises that there's going to be one like Elijah who's going to come and he's going to make straight the paths, prepare the way for the Lord. So we've got John uh, in my family that we've always said our desire is for him to prepare people's hearts to hear and receive the Lord as he tells them uh, about Jesus. And then Malachi, who would be God's messenger. And we see in the very start of Malachi, it it starts with this word. It says, in oracle, in oracle. And literally that word means burden. It means burden. And and this this is the thing about the book of Malachi. This is a very heavy message. I feel like uh, Marty McFly, heavy, and then Doc says, is there a problem with weight in the future? A problem with gravity in the future? But it's a very weighty, a very heavy message that he has to deliver. And I can tell you, as I've been preparing this, man, it's like God has taken a two-by-four to the side of my head and woken me up on some areas in my life that he's showing me. So if you, if you don't get anything out of this series, at least I have. Uh, but, but there's some stuff here that God is just showing uh, going to show us that's really heavy. And, and I'll tell you, it's difficult to preach, it's difficult to hear, and it's even more difficult to put into practice. Because God is going to directly challenge some things in our lives, some very difficult things in our lives. And as we approach the book of Malachi, I think often we approach the Word of God, and sometimes we come to it and we, we view it as something less than the Word of God, as if it's nothing more than a book to be read, for just uh, how Christians lived in the past or how Christians should live for today or that we could sum up an entire book of the Bible in 140 characters or less and put it on Twitter. And I can tell you that the message of Malachi is not like that. It is a very heavy message, but it's a very encouraging message. Uh, The way uh, that that God works through this book is that he is going to reveal to the people of Israel that he is looking for true worshipers. We know that Jesus says that God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so in order for God to, to create these true worshipers, to create a true heart of worship in his people, he first starts by revealing his own heart. And, and as he reveals his own heart, he also reveals our hearts. And he peels back the layers. And he says, if you're going to be true worshipers of me, some of these things are going to have to change. And in doing that, God also reveals his heart for his people. And so he begins to, to talk to them. And actually, the book of Malachi is pretty unique because it, the way it plays out is it's really kind of this conversation between God and the people of Israel. And God actually kind of plays the devil, devil's advocate. And he makes a statement. And we'll see this in verse 1, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 2, excuse me, where he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? So He makes a statement, and then they come back. It's almost like it's a a court trial that's taking place here, and he actually answers for them because he knows their hearts. He knows their minds, and so he says, I love you. And then they say, how have you loved us? And so what we see is that there's going to be this series of questions and answers that take place. God will make a statement, and then the people respond with a question saying, well, how have you done this? Well, how have we done that? And it's this Socratic method, if you're familiar with that. It's this teaching through asking of uh, somewhat rhetorical questions. And we see this all throughout the book of Malachi. And what I love about this book is that 
as we just saw, God's first declaration is, I love you. He begins with his love, and he ends the book with his promise of future love. Everything with God always begins with grace. God approaches his people with grace. And through these simple words, we find out that God is a God who is personal. He's a God who's emotional. He's a God who's intentional, and he's a God who is faithful in, in declaring, I love you. He's not only describing his nature as a God who is love, he's also describing his disposition towards his people. He's saying, look, not only am I love, but I love you. I love you. And so how is it? How is it that God can make this declaration, yet they don't feel loved? Well, I want to, before we start judging them, before we start saying, well, man, if God came to me and, and told me that he loved me, certainly I would believe him, right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, do you ever open your mouth and your parents come out? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Like all the stuff that as a kid, you're like, I, I'm never going to say that to my kids. I'm never going to say that. Well, that happens to me more often than I'd like to admit. I open my mouth and my parents come out. And, and here's the thing is God starts and he says, let's look at that very first part of verse one. He says, uh, verse two, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, maybe you're, you've said this, maybe your parents said this to you, but when I was a kid, I wasn't always smart enough to obey my parents the first time with a happy heart, so dad would say, I need you to go clean your room or go do this, and I'd say, why? And what was the answer? Because I'm the daddy and I said so, right? And that was, like, I knew that if I, if I went beyond that, I was smart enough to know what was coming next, which was the inability to sit down for a week, so I would go and do it, but it was that because I'm the daddy and I said so. And so here God is saying, I have loved you, says the Lord. That should be enough, right? But you and I both know our human hearts and how, how dissatisfied we are with that answer. And so we find the people of God questioning. And before we start to judge them, I, I want to take us back to remind ourselves everything that Israel's been through. So we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and we see that Abraham has made a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham to turn him into a great nation. And then that promise is passed from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to his son Jacob. And then all the way down, we know that eventually the people of Israel end up in Egypt and they're in captivity for 400 years. And then they're finally led out by Moses. They wander around in the desert because of their own disobedience. And then finally, after that generation passes away, God raises up Joshua Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they finally start to take possession of the land. Well, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we find is that God says, hey, look, I'm going to finally give you the land that I promised to Abraham. But here's the thing. I'm going to bless you with this land, and this land's going to be a blessing to you, but you're not going to reap the full blessing of that land unless you obey me and unless you only worship me. And so for, for a time, the people do all right, and they kind of have this history of going up and down like this. They're following God, they fall away. They're following God, they fall away. Well, the other thing that God told them that he promised them was, listen, if you don't follow me, if you don't honor me, then I'm going to remove you from the land, and you're going you're gonna to lose this blessing of the land. And so that's exactly what happens. Jeremiah, the prophet, he tells them, and God sends many prophets to say, guys, you've got to cut it out. You've got to stop worshiping all these other false gods. You've got to get right, uh, or else God's going to remove you from the land. And then we know that eventually God sends the Babylonians, and he carries off. Jerusalem is destroyed, and he carries off the people. But just as God promised, it was only for a time. 
For 70 years, they're in captivity, and then they begin to return. And when they return, they find that their temple is in ruins, their city is in ruins. So they begin to rebuild the temple of God. And Zechariah is one of those prophets. If you want to go to Ezra and Nehemiah, you can start reading about that. Not, not right now. I know, hopefully I'm not that boring. But uh, later, you can read about their return and how they started rebuilding. But in Zechariah chapter 8, we read these words. The Lord of hosts says this. Peoples will yet come, the residents of many cities, the residents of one city will go to another saying, let's go at once to plead for the Lord's favor and to seek the Lord of hosts. I am also going. Many peoples, strong and nations, and strong nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to plead for the Lord's favor. The Lord of hosts says this, in those days, 10 men from Nations of every language will grab the rope of a Jewish man tightly, urging, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And so we see in this that God has promised them, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild your city of Jerusalem. I'm going to be with you in the city of Jerusalem. You're going to rebuild the temple. You're going to rebuild this place of worship. And people are going to want to come here because my presence is there. I'm going to turn you into an international powerhouse that... Everyone around the world is going to respect you as a nation. This prophecy was made over 100 years before the book of Malachi was written. So imagine, you hear those words from the prophet Zechariah. You hear that God is going to return. God is going to fill his temple again. He's going to fill his city. He's going to protect his city. And the years begin to go by. And you're still under the rule of a foreign king. You're the laughing stock of all the other nations around you. I got to ask you in that moment, would you feel God's love? Would you feel God's love? Or or would you maybe say, God, how how have you loved us? You made you made us this promise and it it hasn't happened and I'm just wondering where is that? When is that going to happen? The promises of God have not been realized in the time that they expected or in the way that they expected. Therefore, they don't feel that God loves them. Now, let me say that again. The promises of God were not fulfilled in the time or in the way that they expected, so they don't feel that God loves them. Now, I know that we would never do that. Like, none of us have ever done that, right? Because i I got to be honest— when I got into church planting, I thought, you know what, I'm going to come to Georgetown. I'm going to share the gospel a couple times. Lots of people are going to come and trust Jesus. They're going to share the gospel. We'll be at like 500 by Christmas. And then, you know, we're going to have a building by the next fall. And things are going to be great. Like someone's just going to give us 20 acres of land. And, and we'll just reach this whole city within like the next five years. And here we are four years later still doing setup and teardown. And I got to tell you that there are moments when I'm like, okay, this isn't what I expected. And it's easy for me, it would be easy for me to get frustrated because why? Because I had my own expectations of what I wanted God to do. But God reminds the people, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm still going to fulfill my promises. It's not going to happen in your timing and it may not happen the way that you expect, but I'm faithful. I have loved you, says the Lord in verse one. Let's go on to... Uh, to see some other things here. The people of Israel, we can identify them. They're hurting physically. They're hurting emotionally, financially, materially, and a number of other ways. Their life is hard and somewhat hopeless. And this doesn't result in anger for them, but in apathy. 
And it begins to show in their worship. And we're going to see that next week, the way that their apathy began to show. But they just kind of get to this place where they're just going through the motions. They're like, okay, we, yeah, God, you say that you love us, so we'll keep doing all these things, but my heart's not really in it. We just need a reminder of God's love. And so what does God do? Instead of punishing them, instead of rebuking them, he sends the prophet Malachi to say, just remember, I love you. I love you. And then we read this in verse 2. Go back to verse, verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And then God's going to remind them of their past. God's going to remind them of their past. He's going to remind them in three ways. He's going to remind them of their past, present, and future. And I think this is important that we remember this, that God reminds us of our past, present, and future because when we begin to question God's love for us, when we begin to doubt, I think there's, there's three things that happen. There's three things that we can start to believe these lies. Number one, we begin to question his presence. God, are you even there? Do you even care about what's going on in my life? And sometimes that leads us to question his power. Okay, God, you're here but aren't you powerful enough to stop this? And then lastly, we may question his goodness. God, if you're good, why wouldn't you give me something better? And I can tell you, um, this is a reality in my own life. July 14th, 2009, was the day that my first child was delivered. Eliana Noah was born at 26 weeks, stillborn after two years of Amanda and I trying for a child. Uh, We had tried for two years, and we tried, and we tried, and we tried, and then finally we were pregnant. And I remember the day she told me that she was going to have a baby. And it it was as if God had answered all our prayers, and then by July, 26 weeks in, we realized that something was wrong, and the doctors told us, um, this baby is not going to survive. And I can remember for two weeks, we were on our knees, and we were praying, and praying, and praying, and praying. And in those moments, I would be lying if I, didn't, if I didn't say that there were times when I felt like maybe God's not here. God, don't you love me? God, don't you care? Why, w- why would you even give us this child just to take it away? Can't you give me something good? And I found myself questioning. But there were three things that God reminded me of. He reminded me of my past, my present, and my future. And that's exactly what he does with the people of Israel. Let's keep looking at the text and see how he does this. He reminds them, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's dec- declaration. Even so, I loved J- Jacob, but Esau I hated. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the jackals. Now let's stop there. God's reminding them of their past. He says, look, the very fact that you, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through, you, the people of Israel, are my chosen people, that I chose you. I made a choice, and I loved you. If you remember, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has two sons. He has twins, Jacob and Esau. 
And Esau is actually born first. So according to the custom of that day, Esau should have been the one who the line was carried through. He should have been the one to receive the promise. He should have been the one to receive the inheritance. But through a series of crazy events, Jacob is the one who ends up getting, uh, excuse me, Jacob is the one who ends up getting the blessing. And eventually God changes his name to Israel. And it shouldn't have really been a surprise because God told his mother, while the boys were still in the womb, that the older will serve the younger. So everything that God had said had taken place. And so we see that God has made a choice. In choosing one, he rejected the other. Now we, we struggle with this language of what it means to choose and reject, or I have loved, es- Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that doesn't sound like a very good God to say that I, I hate people, but we have to really understand what's taking place here. And if I could have a volunteer, do I have any volunteers? Anybody? I promise you won't get hurt. Anybody? Maddie always volunteers. Let me get another volunteer. All right, we got, we got one back there in the back. Is that Avery or Aaron back there? Avery, come on back. Sorry, I'm having a hard time seeing. Come on up. Everybody give her a hand. Avery, come on up. Today is your lucky day. You'll have to wait until your mommy says, come on up, come on up. Now, Avery, I'm going to give you a choice. You have Snickers, or my favorite, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So you get to, you get to make a choice which one you want. I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I don't know because I have braces. Oh. Well, this one has peanuts and caramel, and this one has Reese's, peanut butter. All right, so you choose the Snickers. So by choosing the Snickers, you're rejecting the Reese's, right? Yeah? All right, that's yours. Hey, give her a hand. Have a seat. Have a seat. All right, so in choosing one, she had to reject the other. And God says, look, I made a choice. I made a choice that my promise was going to continue through Jacob and not through Esau. And because I loved Jacob, my love for him was so strong that when Esau missed out on the promise, it seemed like hate. It seemed like he was being left out, but really I just made a choice. And we understand that. It wasn't that God hated him. We know that ultimately his promise to make Israel into a great nation and the promises through Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him, that God doesn't reject anyone through Jesus Christ. But he's making a point. We have a a quote here. Here we go, teenagers. There you go. Oh, good catch. So we have this quote by Joyce Baldwin. The very fact that Jacob was chosen or loved meant that Esau was rejected or hated. Rejection being implicit in the exercise of choice. Personal animosity towards Esau is not implied. So what is that saying? So when that person cuts you off and you start to ride their bumper and you start to wave at them... um, with most of your fingers, like that is hatred. That is personal animosity. That is not what's taking place here. God is just saying, look, I chose one and in choosing one, I had to reject the other. And he's reminding them that you, people of Israel, you were chosen. You were chosen and I blessed you with this land. I took you to a place flowing with milk and honey and over and over again, when you disobeyed, I brought you back into restoration. And yes, I did have to punish you. And yes, my promises haven't come true in your timing. But I still love you. I loved you then and I love you now. 
And he goes on and he says this in verse 4. In verse 4 we read, Though Edom, Edom are the descendants of Esau. So we've got Jacob's descendants are Israel. And we've got Edom are the descendants of Esau. So two brothers, long distance. Um, Though Edom, or Esau, says, We have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says this, They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people of the Lord... Uh, the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. So what's happening here? So we have both the descendants of Jacob and Esau. They've both been through tough times. Both of them have been conquered. Both of them have been through periods of exile. But here's what happens. When Babylon invades, Edom ends up going, and they get carried off by the Nabataeans, and they're invaded by the Nabataeans, and they have to move south into the desert. And what happens is after 70 years, the people of Israel get to move back into their land. But nothing like that has happened for the people of of Edom, for Jacob, for Esau's descendants. And so God is saying, look, he's saying, you don't believe that I love you? You don't believe that that I still care for you? Just look across the river. The people of Edom don't have a land flowing with milk and honey to come back to. I haven't given them their land back yet. They don't have a temple to rebuild where they can worship me. They don't have the promise and the hope of a future Messiah that you have. It says, just look around and look at all the things that are going on. Your your city is rebuilt. Your temple has been rebuilt. Your wall has been rebuilt. Your worship has been reinstituted. And the people of Edom don't have that. Not only that, but they, they don't have the promise for a future hope. They don't have the promise of a Messiah coming from their nation who will save them and restore them. If you don't believe I love you, just quit your navel-gaving for just a minute and look up. Look around and see that I love you. And the last thing he does is he reminds them of their past. Verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Your own eyes will see this. For you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. He's saying, look, you are going to see the nation of Israel, its God, lifted up. The Lord is great even beyond the, the, nation, the borders of Israel. Now, some people think that this refers to the time of the Maccabean dynasty. When the Maccabeans rose up and they, they kept the uh, Greek influence, the Greek empire, from coming into Jerusalem. But we know ultimately that this prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That it's through the coming of Jesus that God's name is made great throughout the world. And if you want evidence of that, just think about how many people all over the world are gathered as churches on a Sunday morning to worship the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God who was born of the nation of Israel. People all over the world gather to worship him. This is God's promise come true. He says, my name will be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. And we see this coming true. Not only that, not only is that the fulfillment and their future hope, but it's also our hope, past, present, and future. It's our hope, past, present, and future. And so when we find ourselves in these moments where we can't feel God's love, you find yourself in a moment where you're, you're struggling financially. You're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling physically. And you're wondering, God, why am I going through this? Don't you love me? Don't you want better for me? 
There's nothing better than to be reminded of God's love past, present, and future. And I can tell you when, when we were going through the loss of our first child, if it weren't for God's continual reminder of his love for me in the past, in the present, in the future, I think I, I probably would have gone out of my mind. And I can tell you the very first thing that God reminded me of in those dark days, in those days when we were on our knees, wetting our bed with our tears, the first thing that he reminded me of was the cross. If you are here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how you feel, you should always be able to look back to the cross and say, there, there is where my God proved his love for me. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for my sins, to pay the penalty for my sins. He came to earth to be present with humanity. So God was present. He came and he gives up his own son. He gives up his own son to overcome sin. And he proved his power by raising his son from the dead. So God is powerful. And then he gives us this salvation, this forgiveness of our sins as a free gift. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to work for it. It's simply a free gift that I receive through faith, which is evidence that God is good. So we can always look to the past, but we can also look to our present. I don't know about you, but there, there are days when life just seems hard, and all of a sudden God reminds me of the good things that he's done in my life and the good things that I have in my life. I get to come home uh, to a, a, a house that has air conditioning. Like, that is proof of God's love. I can go to HEB and buy a carton of Bluebell. That is proof of God's love right? I, I mean, it's the small things in life. But then we start thinking about all the other things that he gives us the reality of his word that works in and through us to conform us and transform us into the likeness of his son. That we get to participate in the, the process of life change as God changes other people's lives. He uses us. That we get to be a part of that. Those are good things. Those are demonstrations of his love to us. Not only that, but we can know that not only is our, our sin forgiven in the past on the cross, but if you're anything like me, you still sin. You still mess up every single day. And you still need God's forgiveness every single day. And he continues to forgive our sin. He is working in our lives in the present. And we should never forget that. He gives us guidance. He readily hears our prayers. And he sustains us with his loving care. And then lastly, we can look to our future. Verse 5, we know we'll find its final fulfillment, that God's name will be made great beyond the borders of Israel. We know that this will finally come true when Jesus returns. When he returns, and all believers are there before heaven, before the throne, we're standing there, and we're worshiping. We read this in Revelation chapter 5. We read this verse. It says, they said, this is people from all over the world, all believers, all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ are finally gathered before the throne. It says, they said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. At that time, all people will recognize, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will give him the honor and the glory that is due him. Now think about our future as those who are in Christ, you may be struggling physically. When you get to heaven, 
You'll have a new body. No more pain. No more sickness. You may be struggling emotionally. When you get to heaven, there will be no more sadness, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more anger, no more resentment, no more bitterness to eat away at you. You'll be in the presence of the Lord. You may be struggling financially, and we know that when we stand in heaven, that we will see the richness in the glory of God like we've never experienced it before. So God continually reminds us of our, of, our, of our past, our present, and our future in him. And in him alone is our past, present, and future. And so when we find ourselves asking that question, God, do you love me? God, do you love me? My encouragement to you is to walk through your past, thinking about how God has been good to me. Think about all the times that, that God spared me, or that I look back and I think, wow, that car wreck could have been a lot worse. You know, if I had been a split second faster through that intersection, that other driver would have gone right through my side, and I'd be dead. Or, wow, I just fell off the roof putting up Christmas lights and landed in the bushes. You know, I, I, that could have been a lot worse. We can think about all the ways that God has provided for us in the past, but we, we need only to look to the cross. And we look to the cross and we're reminded that God was at work in our past, he's at work in our present, and he's going to continue to work in our future.